If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas, and I'm excited that you're here. And with that, we're going to jump into this week's podcast here in just a second. We're going to hit up our sponsors that help make the show possible. There's lots of companies that I believe in that I think help veterans across the board, whether it's find a job, hire talent, become more efficient in their practice, all those things, right? So these sponsors mean a ton to me. So I know a lot of people will fast forward or skip through them. But if and when you're looking for help and some of the solutions they offer, I would highly, highly encourage you to check them out. And so with that, no further ado, jump into the ads and we'll get right into the show. So thank you for listening and uh, enjoy. I get it, Isaiah. You talk about Bitcoin all the time. Well, as I go out and about, I continually hear the demand for any more Bitcoin education, or I don't really understand. I hear you talking about it. I know you're passionate about it. I know you have a lot of conviction, but I need more info. And that's where Bitcoin for Vet Med really came from, was taking, hey, the 10,000, 100,000 hours of time that I've spent and distill it down into bite-sized courses and walking you through of getting a foundational why, a little bit of understanding the technical side of Bitcoin, and then how to grapple with the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and just the things that you hear throughout the media and giving you the ability to up your Bitcoin knowledge to go from zero to hero and feel a lot more comfortable saying, okay, this is something that matters and I want to take some of the value that I create and save into Bitcoin. So head over to bitcoinforvetmed.com or click the link in the show notes. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. Finding a job or finding a veterinarian shouldn't be a waste of time. Enter an offer first. Paul Diaz and team have created something really special with Offer First. Some of my favorite reasons are as follows. Candidates and employers will both have values aligned on the first step, not the last. The sign-up process, quick and simple, no resume required. So if you're looking for a job, but you aren't really sure, it's as easy as scrolling on Zillow for a home. And finally, if you have a great match, it's based on your each unique requirements, not random keywords. If you want to learn more, listen to episode 179 with Paul Diaz. We cover all of that. The other exclusive great thing that you're going to get from this ad read and from Paul is I convinced him to give an exclusive discount to listeners of this podcast. So for owners, you're getting a 20% discount on both the placement of any candidate, but also access to the platform. Use VSP if you go to offer first or the easiest way is a link in the show notes. So check it out. Associates, those looking for a job, same thing. Use the link in the show notes. Use VSP if you go directly to offer first. But 
I will donate and Paul will donate to a veterinary nonprofit of your choosing. So each person that signs up gets a vote. Your votes actually count, which is incredible. And so I'll be reaching out. I will handle that. But there's going to be a donation made for any associate or any job seeker that adds on the platform. We want to make sure that not only does the platform help to make sure that you find a better fit, better culture, better role, but it's also doing good in veterinary medicine. Okay. So link in the show notes is going to take you to offer first. It's going to automatically apply that, but also use code VSP if you go to offer first directly. And offer first is changing the game of veterinary recruiting. I want each and every one of you to benefit from it. So check them out today. Find out for yourself why my friends at Shepherd Veterinary Software are the fastest growing practice management software. They're doing something right. Founded by Dr. Cindy Barnes, Shepherd is an intuitive, easy to learn, streamlines practice management. Built for vets, by vets, it works for you and your team so you have more time to spend on what's most important, your patients. Shepherd automatically updates the medical records, adds services to the invoice, generates discharge instructions, and so much more. Bring home more stories and less stress. Check them out at shepherd.vet. Again, that's shepherd.vet. All right. On today's show, I am excited to welcome Dr. Christopher Sauvet. Chris is a specialist focused on veterinary dentistry and on oral surgery. He founded and leads the Edmonton Veterinary Dental Club, calling Canada home, of course, plays hockey, big into hockey as well, right? And we'll chat through kind of his journey down the rabbit hole around Bitcoin as well. Any listener of this podcast for any length of time knows that's a topic I love. And anytime I can marry Bitcoin, vet med together is a great day. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. What a pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate that, Isaiah. Thank you so much. And yeah, the way that we crossed paths was that I was following you on LinkedIn and there's a lot of veterinary content, veterinary financial content. And I was really interested in that. And then you started talking about Bitcoin and it really perked my ear up. So I'm really glad that we're able to connect and hopefully we'll have a little bit of fun and share some information. Yeah, with some people. love it. And I think I got your last name correct. Right. That's right. Sove. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Close, Perfect. Close, closer than what I was no, the first time perfect. I attempted it. So it wasn't suave. So we'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. <laughs> so I think there's going to be a, probably a lot of folks on the podcast that are going to listen and not recognize you, your story. And I kind of want to start there because you do have a very specific niche. And I always love to kind of ask, how did you get to where you're at today and kind of what that journey looked like? So you can take that in any way that you want, short, long, uh, anything in between. Sure. I don't think there's any way but long. The story has a lot of chapters. So I'll try to start from the beginning. So I came from pretty humble beginnings. I had a single mom that was doing everything she can to make our lives great for myself and my brother. But certainly throughout my normal school time in high school, I lost track a little bit. I always say that I was a great kid, but a bad student. Always a nice kid, very respectful, but wasn't the best at showing up on time and didn't take it seriously and you know, didn't have that oversight that, that I perhaps needed. So the first chapter of my adult life was a little bit tough. Found myself out in the real world. I was galvanizing metal. I was scraping metal off of street poles in the middle of winter, which is minus 27 here. I don't even know what that is in Fahrenheit. So I had a dose of reality of what a tough life can be. And I really hit a point in my life where I needed to decide if this is what I was going to do for my life for the next 50, 60 years, or if I needed to revise that. So unlike many people that are in veterinary medicine that will say that they knew they wanted to be a vet since they were four or five years old, that was not me. Of course, I always loved animals. All kids 
everybody loves animals. That was not a consideration at the time. I had some limiting beliefs about that. So at that time, I decided that this was not for me as far as being in uh, uh, this this job occupation that I was in. And I did not know where I needed to go, but I just knew it wasn't there. So I just quit and went back to school. I did grade 11 and 12 all over again. So I took two full years to upgrade because I had to do all of the classes that I never did before or did poorly. And then I went into university with no real idea about where I was going to go. But during the brainstorming process, I came to the conclusion that I love animals. And if there's an ability for me to make a good living doing so, then I should pursue that. And as I was talking to some people, my friends and family, as well as people in the veterinary industry, everything I kept hearing was that it's very difficult to get into veterinary school. And it's almost to the point that you shouldn't even try. And there is an element of me that is a little bit defiant, a little bit punk rock, which I think does coincide with the Bitcoin stuff that's going to come later, is that who's going to tell me what I can and can't do? So I almost use that as fire, bulletin board material, and decided to pursue it. So I started volunteering at vet clinics, started making connections, getting all the experience I needed to, kicked ass at school. I did really good. And I was fortunate enough to be accepted into vet school on my first application. So I'm very grateful for that. Certainly worked very hard for that as well. And so I went through vet school, Dentistry was not on the agenda at that point either. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was at that point probably just content that I actually did get to vet school, that I did set that goal and I did make it. So that satisfied that thirst for a little while. So during vet school for my summers, I worked at an emergency clinic in Edmonton, Alberta, where I live now. And that gave me a really good insight into emergency medicine. We also had a specialty practice that was under the same roof. And so I got exposed to high quality medicine, really important care. And so I ended up going into that right after vet school, which I wouldn't strongly recommend for new grads unless there's a real strong mentorship program because it was a tough go for a little bit. But I stayed there for three years or so. And certainly in the last half of that time period, although I got a little bit more comfortable with the emergency medicine, I felt myself losing passion for what I was doing again. I knew that what I was doing was important and it was interesting, but to be honest, the hours and the schedule was very, very hard on me. And I think it is hard on everybody that's in that scheduling situation. And I was losing in emergency, you end up having a lot of negative conversations. You end up, it's not necessarily the euthanasias that is the negative side of it. Of course, there's some sadness and empathy that goes there and some weight, but a lot of the discussions that are at the intersection of emotions and finances can be really challenging. And when the vast majority of your conversations are like that and you get a lot of negative feedback, it it does get to you after a while. So had definitely come to the conclusion that emergency medicine was not going to be what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Again, did not know what I wanted to do. So I was at the point where I was thinking, do I really even want to be a veterinarian? And I did hit that point, which I know that a lot of practitioners, probably in all careers, but certainly veterinarians hit in that, you know, this isn't maybe exactly what I thought it was going to be. I'm not as thrilled to get up in the morning and do this. I'm not as excited or passionate or it's not as rewarding. So I hit that point. And now instead of pursuing a different career because I had invested so much into this field, I decided to go into general practice first, just to give that a go, essentially give it a go before I change careers altogether. And now what I will say is general practice was not for me either. (laughs) Definitely a shout out to all the general practitioners or primary care vets. It's a really tough gig. 
you're expected to know everything all the time, balancing crazy schedules where you have procedures in the morning and appointments breathing down your neck. So they have a really, really tough gig. So that also was not for me. I like to be a master of something rather than a jack of all trade. But what I did find was dentistry. And now the practice that I was at had a dentistry program and it definitely had some warts that needed to be revamped. And I really took that to heart and that essentially became my baby where I did everything I could and I put all my energy into dentistry. And the reason why I saw it as an opportunity, I guess a couple of reasons. One, the need for it is so significant. I mean, essentially every animal out there does require dental oral care on an ongoing basis. And they're most, the vast majority are not able to receive that. And there also is some cultural issues in veterinary medicine where dentistry isn't taken as seriously as it probably should be. And I think that's probably a byproduct of the fact that it is in veterinary medicine rather than compared to the human industry or human profession, it's a separate entity altogether. I don't remember exactly how many hours of veterinary dentistry school training we got in vet school, but it was far less than 20 hours. It's probably around 10 or so. And so when primary care vets are coming out of vet school, it's tough. You're expected to know exactly what you're doing. And I would say that with inadequate training and I don't think that sets anybody up for success. I think that it creates negative feelings towards veterinary dentistry. So now I had those negative feelings as well, but I did see it as my opportunity. And again, because everybody disliked it and nobody respected it, I saw an opportunity that just, for those sorts of things, they just light up in me. And it's like, okay, here's my opportunity to change the world, to make a difference on some level anyway. And I really found a lot of professional satisfaction doing dentistry that I did not receive in other jobs or disciplines. It just something resonated that was different. Certainly one of the most impactful things is that you take an animal that is seemingly normal. They're eating, they're not crying, they're not complaining, because that's the common things that people will say. They're like, oh, he's fine. I mean, it's a dog, whatever. And then we would address all of the oral infection and inflammation in the mouth, and the owners would be overwhelmed. They would come back for the recheck because they had the idea that this wasn't going to do anything. And it was not infrequent that we hear, oh, he's like a puppy again. And what it tells us is that that old dog that we thought was just getting old was actually just miserable. They had oral infection, oral inflammation, oral discomfort. And that also has a holistic systemic effect too, where you get systemic and inflammatory markers that do affect all the other organs and the brain and demeanor and that sort of thing. So it felt like this perfect cross-section of something nobody else wanted to do. What a great opportunity for somebody. The need is ubiquitous and growing. And we're not selling snake oil. We're really helping animals. And my response to what I do at dinner parties is I cure silent suffering. And it sounds fluffy, but I genuinely believe that. And I'm really privileged to be able to do that on a day-to-day -day basis. So once I found out that dentistry was something that I wanted to do, my wife and I had to go back to the drawing board and decide what was the next stage for us, what was the next chapter. And the veterinary world, just like in the human world, if you want to become a specialist, you have to do a residency, which is usually a three-year program. At that time, there was two facilities that had residency programs in Canada, but neither were taking any candidates at that time, or at least they weren't taking me. Who knows? <laughs> but so I was 
given the opportunity in Kansas City with my mentors, Dr. Scott McGee and Susan Crowder, and I'm very grateful to them at Companion Animal Dentistry of Kansas City for taking me. I was their first resident, so they took a risk on me. They took me on as an international student, and that's some risk for them as well as far as paperwork, if that's going to go well and that sort of thing. And it was a great experience. I think it was a great experience for all of us. It was rewarding. We all learned a ton about each other and about ourselves. And I was able to inherit and earn the skills and knowledge through that experience to do what I do today, which is what I would argue is the best job in the world. And again, I know that sounds fluffy, but I think it's true. I get the opportunity to treat animals on a day-to-day basis doing really amazing things. Obviously, there's the baseline extractions that we would all probably think about, but we certainly do root canals for fractured and discolored teeth. We do pretty major surgery, so maxillofacial surgery for trauma patients and cancer patients, unfortunately. But we can see some really, really great outcomes, and we have an excellent team as well. I will get to that as well. But we get to do all sorts of advanced procedures. In addition to that, I feel a responsibility and the privilege to be an advocate for veterinary dentistry in my community. And so I, on a very regular basis, perform online CE, in-person CE. I just did an extraction lecture and lab last month. We have the Edmonton Veterinary Dental Club, which we were meeting really, really regularly up until about February and things kind of fell off. So we're going to get back on that, but that happens sometimes. Probably at the last session, we had about 30 or 40 veterinarians come out just to talk about dentistry. So it shows the not only the need, but the desire. And it's a positive testament to my colleagues in the area. They want to get better. They want to serve their pets better, their patients better and their clients better and and ultimately help their practice earn more revenue and have better sustainability and be able to offer more. So I was fortunate to pass my board certification in 2022. It all gets a little bit mangled with COVID because the test was canceled and we had all sorts of things. I forget exactly, but around that time, I'm proud to say that I'm a specialist in veterinary dentistry and oral surgery. And yeah, we run a great program at Pulse Veterinary Specialist in Emergency, which is in Sherpark, Park, which is a suburb of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Our practice is growing. We opened in March of 2020, which was not a great time to open a business for obvious reasons, but we literally started out taking appointments in the parking lot. So we never had a normal before that, that we just started as abnormal. But now we're well over 100 staff members. I think we have eight specialty departments, a 24-hour emergency, and a really cohesive team that works together, great management. We're really happy that we have this facility in Edmonton and happy to provide advanced dentistry and oral surgery. So that's my long story short or short story long, probably, on how I got into veterinary dentistry. I love it. Thank you for that. And so many different things to kind of pull on. The first is you talked about it, just the oral health of a pet and then like how it impacts the rest of the body and just even the attitude. It's the same way in human health, right? Talk to any dentist, they'll tell you the same thing. So it's like, well, shoot, why would that be any different in these pets? So it makes a ton of sense that there would be a massive amount of benefit for staying on top of this stuff. And then obviously there's going to be certain things that GPs can do. And I know lots of people that hate it and they, they say that I've talked to so many that just don't like it, but the idea of seeing, Hey, there's this opportunity. I like it or I'm interested in it or I don't dislike it as strongly as everyone else. I should lean into that is a great piece of advice just with anything I feel like in life from the standpoint of what can I go do and put my skill set or talent or energy towards maybe others think is weird or boring or not interesting that I just light up about. And it's obvious that, yeah, you do love it. 
Do you still stay connected with the residency, the folks in Kansas City? I would assume yes. Do you still communicate? All the time. I texted with Dr. Me yesterday. So always, you know, whenever I have a big case that has an interesting component, usually these maxillofacial cases, I'm texting them images, showing them the CT scans and that sort of thing. So yeah, all the time. They're phone a friend. So if I've ever had a sticky situation that I just want to kind of pass by somebody. I'll definitely call Dr. McGee. I have another colleague down the road in Calgary, Rob Cabell. He's also been very great with me. Just anytime there's anything that they need to discuss, he's been there to help. So really good community in the veterinary dentistry community as well. We're all passionate nerds about this and we're all kind of fighting the same fight together. So there's some degree of allegiance between us that it's a great community. That's awesome. Yeah. Assumed yes, right? There's a good relationship. They stay in touch. Love to see that. And it's one of those things where you have a colleague, but also like friends for life, spending that kind of time there. And yeah, not being from Kansas City, you're going to get integrated in the city through that relationship, which is cool. And what I would say, I would extend that because I know that there's going to be maybe new grads or vet students that are watching this and contemplating the idea of a residency or internship and that sort of thing. And one thing I would say is that when we moved to Kansas, it was really a leap of faith, which I understand can be positive or can be negative. And some of that is external and a lot of that is up here. But we had a, a tremendous, who would have thought in Kansas City would have been a great place to live that we will cherish those memories forever and have friends forever. I really didn't think that was going to be the case. It seemed like a means to an end, but we lived in a suburb called Lenexa and it was awesome. We loved it. It was really great. I mean, it was too hot there to be honest, but as far as the community goes, I would have never visited Kansas City in my life ever, but it definitely holds a special place in our heart. So for anybody that's considering that sort of drastic move, because it really is, try to be optimistic about it and think about it that it can be a very interesting chapter of your life, that it's an opportunity that most people don't get. And I think that much like many things in veterinary medicine, I think we need to start focusing a little bit more on the positives and the negatives. And I think that that opportunity to live somewhere for three years and meet new people and live in a different, I mean, it's not tremendously different culture, but it is somewhat different. And I think that's tremendous life experience. And I would encourage people to do it more. Yeah. And I think there's an important lesson there just in general. And I've always said this, you can go anywhere in the world and likely find people that you're like, we're really not that different. There's a lot of the same things that we all want, regardless of all these differences that people may build up, whether it's political or religious or all these other things, right? We're probably all thinking about things pretty similarly as far as what we want. We want to be able to contribute. We want to be able to take care of the people that we love, like all these different things. And it's, you can go to any city, even if it feels like, oh, who would ever go there, right? I live in what I would call flyover country in Indiana. And I'm always like, this is a great place to be. I wouldn't change it. I love where I'm from, but I get that it's not necessarily a hotbed for people to move to. But I think you can go to lots of places around this country and others and just meet amazing people and be like, wow, this is a great place to spend time. And yeah, maybe it is three years. Maybe it's not the entire time where you're like, hey, I'm going to live here forever, but it's a good experience to have. And so I would echo that as well. You talked about it a little bit, and what's no surprise. Interesting thing is the first podcast I ever did was with Mary Berg, and it was on dentistry in veterinary medicine. And she's out of Kansas City as well, or in that area. So what do you think, and this is probably painting with too broad of a brush, but what do you think most GPs misunderstand about dentistry or why they feel kind of eh towards dentistry for the most part? I think that they don't believe in it. This is definitely a broad statement and not applicable to everybody, but I think that there's not enough conviction in the value and the importance of it. Because I think that just like I'm talking to you and I'm trying to look at you in the camera eye here, you need to look at the client and truly believe that what you're offering 
and may I say selling, because you are trying to convince somebody to do a transaction, is worth it for their family and their pet. And if you are one that does not believe that is tremendous value, then I think that you're not going to have a lot of success in having owners agree to your recommendations. And I think that sometimes what that what happens is that one does not appreciate that part of it and they just have low compliance and they get frustrated. But it may be a little bit more of a look inward on, do you really believe in what you're recommending? Do you do the same thing for your pets? Do you empathize with owners and recognize that they may not all be able to do exactly what we say, but where can we meet them with middle ground? So I think just the conviction in the importance of veterinary dentistry and preventative care is probably the biggest issue on a ground level. And a lot of times when we kind of expand on that to preventative care, the vast majority of veterinary dentistry is not preventative care. It's usually calculus, even in the best cases, calculus and plaque has accumulated for over a year, if not longer. And we're going in to clean that off and evaluate what is the damage underneath, which inevitably results in some degree of extractions for the vast majority of patients every year. Now, I don't necessarily have all the answers, but what I would say is that we definitely need to shift veterinary dentistry to more of a preventative ethos or principles rather than treatment, because that's definitely not what it is right now. So I think it's kind of conviction and focusing on prevention is the biggest thing that needs to change over the next decade. Before we switch gears, is there anything other related to either veterinary medicine, dentistry within veterinary medicine, you kind of want to share or touch on or talk on to the audience? Yeah, I think that one thing that comes up, and I think this aligns great with what we just talked about as far as inadequate training in vet school and then getting out into the real world and maybe not feeling comfortable or having as much conviction as one may want is, again, looking inward and do something about it. Do CE, do training, lean into the thing that people don't like, lean into the thing that maybe makes you a little bit more uncomfortable. Because I know that lots of veterinarians will take courses on how to do this really advanced skeletal surgery that they may do once and then there's the question like, well, should that probably go to a specialist or not if you're only going to do it once a year? That's a whole different conversation. Whereas what about the impact of doing something that you do every day and probably do multiple times a day and maybe a source of negative energy for you that kind of drains you? But what if you invested in that and took ownership of that lack of training, change it around? It really doesn't take much. A few courses here and there will really change your game in dentistry. Um, so I would say that if, maybe dentistry is not for everybody, but I think it is for a lot more people than they think, if that makes sense. And I would encourage them to not just continue trudging along, try to be better. And there's lots of resources, lots of assets out there to get better. And almost everybody in the veterinary dentistry community is like me and that we want to help and we are there for questions and we want to be a part of positive change. So just be an advocate for yourself. And if you see a part of your practice that you're not loving or you're not comfortable, look at that, ask questions why that may be. And I think a lot of people find more professional satisfaction doing that. Yeah. And I mean, I've been an advocate on this show for private practice ownership and talking about finances and all these different things. And you mentioned even earlier, to me, there's a huge unmet need and it's doing good, but it's also revenue for the practice. That's not necessarily a bad thing where you can improve care and do well doing it. 
that seems like a nice blend of things yeah. to come together. No, for sure. And to even expand on that, Isaiah, it's a part of the practice that you can leverage and utilize your RVTs. I don't know what different regions call them, but essentially the animal nurses, the registered veterinary technologists, to do a lot of the work. They can do the full mouth x-rays. They can do the cleaning. They can do the charting. They don't do surgery, but that's okay. But the vast majority of the preventative care can actually be with your paraprofessional team. And so I think that there's tremendous opportunity, not only for them to have higher professional satisfaction, but I think from a business perspective, it makes a lot of sense too. So yeah, absolutely. Inventory medicine is a very interesting industry and it's one of the few industries where making a profit or revenue is considered a negative thing in some lights. It often has a lot of negative connotations, but you're right. It's the perfect marriage of preventative care and good business principles. So it just makes sense. Yeah. Amen to that. I have nothing to add. And I think that you can leverage staff and that's like the topic that comes up all the time. And they want to be leveraged. They want to be used. They want to feel just like I would. I would want to feel more a part of the practice. I would want to feel more a part of what's helping the practice and the business become more sustainable, helping more animals. So yeah, I have not met an RVT that did not want more responsibility and more opportunity to learn and grow. It is RVT month at our practice right now. So I should give a shout out to all the RVTs at Pulse. Thank you for what you do. And the same thing of how do you get raises and do these different things? Like, well, upgrade your skill set, make yourself more valuable. And if you're an RVT, that's a great way to do that and say, I'm going to own this element of the practice. That makes you so valuable. And along that line, they're also not only can one become competent in veterinary dentistry as an RVT, there are also specialty tracks in dentistry for RVTs as well. And there's tremendous opportunity for RVTs there, not only in a clinical practice, but I know a lot of RVTs that, well, I know a few like Mary Berg that are specialists and they, they parlay it into a business where they train how to do instrument sharpening, dental x-rays, and you can have a very profitable business doing that because the need is extremely high right now. Yep. Love giving Mary Berg shout outs. And I saw her when I was up at NEVMA in Portland, Maine recently, and she's traveling all over the place and super busy. So to me, that says dentistry is in need and she's all over the place. She's everywhere. The Veterinary Dental Forum is next week, and I'm sure I'll see Mary there. <laughs> All right. We're going to parlay dentistry, and we'll take this idea of preventative and or thinking in the future of how to set oneself up for success, whether it's as a veterinarian, taking care of patients, and then we'll take it into as a veterinarian from a personal finance perspective, and we're going to bring it into Bitcoin. And I want to kind of ask a little bit, and I'll set the stage because when we chatted you had heard about it, I think, way back, way before I did, right? And it was the too busy, focused on career, too busy, focused on stuff within vet med. And then kind of when you had that moment coming around, and I guess just kind of broadly, why was Bitcoin interesting, other than maybe being disagreeable like myself, where we kind of look at things we're like, ah, people are telling me this is no good. I'm going to look at it. We're going to dig in. Give me that little story. For sure. It's probably more of a brainstorm than a story, to be honest with you. So I definitely heard of it early on well, relatively early on in 2012, 2013, my cousin had some Bitcoin. So he was talking to me about it. And much like how when I talked to people about Bitcoin, I probably ignored him. And I just didn't understand what it was. I was like, okay. And I was very focused on like, I just finished vet school. I was a struggling new grad. So yeah, it just wasn't the right time for me. And then obviously years went by and I got into Bitcoin more seriously quite recently in the last bull run, really, like 2020. And the thing that really resonated with me, and I think there's lots of threads here, like you've kind of alluded to with preventative maintenance for your finances, but also I think from the 
defiant punk rock nature. There's something to Bitcoin. When we talked about it before, I expressed how I look at it. And I look at it as this experiment. And there's this experiment that's going on right now. And there's many parts that are shades to it. There's obviously the financial potential of it, but also there's potentially the impact on the world. And I guess now that I have the opportunity, the question is, do I want to be a part of that or do I not? And do I want another 10 years to go by? And if what happens or what I think is going to happen does happen, do I want to shoulda, woulda, coulda? Because I shoulda, woulda, coulda 2012. It was about $100 then. So, and I don't even know where it's at. 30,000. Yeah, just a shade under 30,000. So that would have made a big financial impact to my family, for sure. And so I don't know exactly what got me into it. Probably just algorithms on social media, I imagine. But what I really learned about was the origin of Bitcoin and the mystery around that, which I just find compelling. I find it extremely compelling and interesting. I certainly expand on that in a second, get your take on it. But then also just the understanding the principles and the mechanics of it with the effects of supply and demand and the impact on price. And in Prevet, we do economics, so I have a very, very fundamental understanding of that. But understanding that there's a finite supply and the demand appears to be only going up. And at this point, it's quite liquid, but at some point it may not be. And it just makes sense to me. I probably don't have the conviction that a lot of other Bitcoiners do, but I don't see how it doesn't continue in the path it's going at the very least, meaning that the supply onto the market is going to continue to go down every three or four years. The demand is likely going to do nothing but go up. And I can't see any reason why the price is not going to follow that. So there wasn't necessarily a light bulb moment. It probably was just the right time, the right video that came on. And I find it a very compelling story and an experiment that I want to be a part of. Yeah, I think the term experiment to me is interesting. I don't know Exactly. I look at experiment and I hear that and I think of the experiment of kind of what we have for money right now, which is kind of an experiment, this idea of government created money that's backed by nothing other than the full faith and credit of whatever governing institution it is. And we've been 50 years into this experiment. And we've kind of seen like there's some weird things happening. There's things that don't really make sense. There's this continual wealth divide. There's this the haves and have nots continue to grow. And why is that? Why are all these things happening? And I think the average person on the street can't quite articulate that it's the money being broken, but there's a person that I would call big picture macro thinker, but she also gets very granular. She's coming to Bitcoin. Her name's Lynn Alden. She wrote a really great book called Broken Money. And really a lot of it is just the history of money and then how money has become broken over time in different civilizations, how different things have become money, how they've faded out. And it's just really interesting when you start to understand what we're seeing today is no different than what we've seen play out other times where as better money comes into play, the other one will fade and it's this phase transition. It doesn't happen overnight where one stops and the next one starts, but it is a phase transition. I think we're in that phase transition. And to your point, I love the idea of what you said. It's like, do I want to be a part of this or not? And it's not always, hey, number go up. I'm going to get super rich and wealthy and we're going to go buy Lambos, right? There's a lot of positive social impact and reasons that it makes things better. And the big thing that I've tried to get across to the veterinary community is you can go be a great doctor. Focus on the things that you love and then you can just save and you don't have to do all this crazy investing or have a second job just to manage your purchasing power. 
and that takes such a mental load and burden off of your plate so that you can just continue to be great at what you do and then spend time with your family, right? And do other things because you shouldn't have to basically have your CFA to manage one's wealth and keep up with inflation and all this other stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think from a financial perspective, the principle that we've always been given is to diversify. And I think that your adage or your line that you say is the wrong amount of Bitcoin to have is zero. And so it doesn't mean you need to be all in. Oh, you're fine. <laughs> it's a vet podcast. podcast that doesn't have any animals featured. It's a disappointment. So no, it's totally normal. Yeah. He hasn't played with this ball in six months, but now's the time. I got to do it now. I got to do it now. <laughs> yeah. So I think like diversifying just, it makes a lot of sense. It is a new asset class, whether somebody wants to agree with that or not. I mean, it is. And I think that diversifying into that just makes a lot of sense. And yeah, you're right. It's not about the riches but certainly a component to developing wealth, I think it logically makes a lot of sense. I think the number go up, which is kind of a joke within Bitcoin community, it does matter because that's what's going to attract people. Because inherently, most humans, all humans are selfish. And we're going to look at, okay, the incentive here is if I get some of this thing, it's going to make life easier because I'll have more to buy the things that I want. Because we don't really think about it. You don't really want money can buy you, right? At the end of the day, we want the house, we want the car, we want the vacations, we want the stuff. We want better food. We want better restaurants. We want all these different things, right? Maybe it's, I want a nicer kitchen or I want to redo the basement or I want to you know, redo our landscaping. The money is just there to allow us to do that stuff. And so if you have better money, it does allow life to be easier. And that's been really my claim with Bitcoin is like Bitcoin helps make life simpler if you start to learn and understand about it. And your conviction in Bitcoin grows over time. You don't start on day one, you're like, yeah, this thing obviously solves all the world's problems and is great. And I'm going to have a 90% allocation of Bitcoin or something that high. You start out small and you continue to learn. And then as you learn, what I've noticed is I have not met anyone that's bought Bitcoin, wanted to learn about it, that their conviction and their allocation doesn't grow. Interestingly, to really tie this all together, that's the exact same thing about dentistry. I have not met a single person that has invested in their dentistry and hasn't fallen in love with it. I literally have not met that person. So yeah, perfect. I, I'm not segue, but to go back and going back to your point before, Isaiah, about money not being backed by anything. And I think that that another analogy to like my veterinary career or anybody's career, there's chapters. And when I was growing up, I mean, money is money. And in my head, that's the way that it always has been. But with age and a little bit of time, you start realizing that that's not the way that it always has been. It's certainly a significantly changed even in the last hundred years with the US dollar not being backed by the gold standard and that sort of thing. So it is extremely dynamic. The world's economic status is constantly changing. We have a number of countries with significant inflation issues. And I think that that comes into the conversation about how does this benefit everybody? Because when I have sort of casual conversations with people that are aware of Bitcoin as a thing, but don't understand or have any interest in learning about the principles, is they kind of make the comment that it's like a rich white person game. And I believe that you'll probably agree with the statement that there's a lot of the world that is underbanked or living in economies that are not trustworthy. And they can't rely on that if you put money in a bank that you can pull it out. And maybe that will happen in our first world countries or not. I don't know. But that is the reality for billions of people. And if one does have the ability to place their future potential or the other things that you mentioned that you would want with money into Bitcoin, that they really have the opportunity to store themselves and they have full autonomy of that 
money or currency, I think that's extremely valuable. If you can improve the health of an animal, you do it, right? Of course, that's what makes veterinarians special. You're mission driven. My friends at LifeLearn are the exact same way. For over 25 years, they've been partnering with you and your peers, providing affordable, customizable online software solutions. These solutions save time, increase efficiency, and assist in managing all aspects of operations. Why? They want to help you improve your partnership with pet owners to improve pet health. LifeLearn has award-winning digital media solutions and are leading the pack as they've prioritized having extensive veterinary knowledge throughout their teams. That difference is seen, it's heard, and it's read by thousands of people across the country. Relax, grow, and thrive with LifeLearn. Click the link in the show notes for an exclusive offer to see how LifeLearn can allow you to get back to what you do best. What I would say is Bitcoin allows for personal property rights to be something that's universal around the world, where in the United States and in Canada, we're used to having semblance of rule and law and personal property rights where we can actually save and keep our stuff. But in yeah, lots of countries, they don't have that. I think the one challenge is for a lot of people around the world, they're living on something like $2 a day or something less than that. It's really hard when it is hand to mouth to eat to like save into an asset Bitcoin that is as volatile as it is. But for a lot of them, they're seeing inflation that is hyperinflation, which is this 50% growth of the cost of everything. I think it's month over month is the definition for hyperinflation. So it's ridiculous where they've seen savings and everything wiped out where you literally get the money and you go buy as much stuff as you can right away because it's going to just blow up and go up in price where you won't be able to afford it. And we've seen that historically. And what it does is it just is, it's nefarious because it just erodes all the culture. And, and when everyone is just so focused on getting by, they can't go do other things. And I think it's really, really important that if we're able over time to adopt a better money, it gives people freedom and flexibility to go and pursue other interests, create beautiful things, do things back for their community. There's plenty of societal benefits, but I think the rich man's game or, hey, it's only for affluent you know, white people in the West to, to own, there is more capital there. And so naturally they will accrue Bitcoin they don't see the need maybe right away. I think there are people and I could give lots of examples. Well, I don't know if I can give some examples I've seen with my role at Swan, but yeah, there's absolutely an interest for people to, how do I store the value that I've created? And so that's really where Bitcoin is in the West, right? So in the United States and in Canada, it is a store of value. That's the way they're looking at it. They're saying, okay, I have real estate, I have stocks, I have bonds, I have gold, I have all these different things. Where do I want to store my wealth? And they're saying more and more, hey, this Bitcoin thing's pretty powerful. I want to go there. But for a lot of other countries, it's just an easy way to transact. And if you look at Nigeria, it's per capita, it's the highest utilization because they rolled out a central bank digital currency and they tried to remove all the cash in the country and everyone has mobile phones. And they were able to really just pour into this open network that is interoperable around the globe and they're plugged in. And so the person in Nigeria, the person in El Salvador, the person in Indiana and in Edmonton all can interact trustlessly, without asking any government's permission, and send value to each other. And that's really, really, really powerful. That whole concept and idea of just everyone being able to focus on then doing what they need to do day in and day out, work on their skill set, be better at whatever profession or take care of family is really underappreciated. And the other thing that is different is if I'm extremely wealthy and I stack a lot of Bitcoin, 10,000 Bitcoin, and you have half a Bitcoin. 
it's not like you are treated any differently than I. The rules are exactly the same. Currently in a fiat system, if I am multi-billionaire and you're everyday average Joe, rules are pretty different, right? You can do a lot of different things when you're in that upper echelon of wealth. And the other thing is with this new creation of money all the time, that person that owns assets, that is the billionaire, it's really hard for them to ever lose that status because it's like a perpetual motion machine. They already own the real estate. They already own the stocks. They already own all these things and they go up in value as the money gets created. Well, with Bitcoin, if I want to live that lifestyle, I only have so much Bitcoin. They're not creating more than 21 million and I have to spend it. And so anyone that is providing services to me and they say, pay me in Bitcoin, they get my Bitcoin and I can't do anything other than create more value to go get more Bitcoin. So you don't perpetuate the wealth the same way because it does start to seep out. You can say, hey, I'm not doing any oral surgery on any pet unless you're paying me in Bitcoin because I don't want your Canadian dollars. I don't want your US dollars anymore. My body hurts when I'm done with this and I want to make sure that I'm getting paid in better money. And so at the end of the day, that's how I think it gets more distributed. And it's not the same as the current system where you just see the creation of new units all go to those that kind of already have an establishment of baseline you know, wealth that you can never catch up with that person. Yeah. I mean, I would say that that's probably true. And that makes a lot of sense. The one thing I would ask is maybe a question that you give your insight on is right now, I guess if one has a lot of wealth, they can use that essentially as collateral or to back the capital that they're going to be borrowing. I mean, I'm not aware of if anybody is doing that with Bitcoin right now, but will that potentially be the world if it continues the way that it's going to, where one that does have a lot of Bitcoin won't ever actually have to spend it. They'll just use it as uh, collateral, for lack of a better word, to borrow money, whatever the money may be. So I think you're starting to see people do that now. So Michael Saylor, MicroStrategy is a publicly traded company. He's CEO, has a lot of the voting shares. So he's able to kind of dictate what they do, even though it's a publicly traded company. And so what they've done is they've issued more shares because as a company, you can issue more equity or more debt, and then they're buying up more Bitcoin. So they're taking, what they're basically doing is saying, take the bad money. We're going to take your bad money and we're going to then go convert it to Bitcoin because we think that's good. So they're saying, hey, you can have more ownership. We're going to own more Bitcoin. And there are people and there are ways to collateralize Bitcoin today. There's a handful of companies that do that. I think it's interesting. It's still early from that standpoint because Bitcoin is volatile and you want to make sure that you're over collateralized. You want to make sure you have a lot there and you're not borrowing really close to those limits because it is one of those things where because it's digital, it trades 24-7, 365. If you get close to getting a margin call where you need to put more Bitcoin in, you don't do it, your Bitcoin's gone, right? And then that's going to get distributed back out to other people within that company, or they're going to pay whoever is lending them the dollars. But I think ultimately it's going to be, are dollars accepted? And I think for a long time, the answer is going to be yes. But at some point they won't because money typically is a confidence game. And it is, what is it that we want to get paid in if we're going to provide a service or a good to you? And money typically converges on one. We don't use thousands of different dollars today in our unit of account, right? In a country, it's usually there's one. Sometimes there's more than one in a lot of places around the globe. You know what they want? They want dollars. In Argentina, they want dollars. They don't want the peso. They're like, no, 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 give me the dollars. You get actually a discount, give me dollars because it's hard to get them in the country. And so the world runs on dollars today. And I think at some point the world runs on Bitcoin, but it's going to take time. Like, I'm not going to say that that's this decade or anything like that. But I mean, even just the amount of change in the last five years has been 
I've only been paying attention since 2020, but having been kind of plugged into this world, just watching resources and listening to people that were talking in 2017, 2018, I mean, there's been tremendous changes and tremendous increase in interest and participation. And one thing I wanted to say too, which for people that are into Bitcoin, this is going to be obvious, but one of the more common things that is said to me is, well, I don't have $30,000. It's like, okay, yes, I understand that, but you do not need to buy a whole Bitcoin. I would say that the vast majority of conversations I have include that as the start because there's this idea that you need to have enough to purchase a full Bitcoin. So to the point of the people that don't have tremendous wealth or people that are less fortunate in, in third world countries, there is that ability to purchase fractions of Bitcoin, really just however you could buy a dollar worth of Bitcoin. Every, yeah, and that's a great point. And sometimes it's one of those things where you just, you get it and then you forget to come back to that. But I've heard that as well many times. It's like every Bitcoin is divisible, right? And it goes into sats. And so today, a dollar gets you roughly 3,200 sats, 3,300 sats. So you can start doing that. And then if it's infinitely divisible, so you can go to millisats. So over time, it's not like they're creating more. It's just divisible where you can cut the pieces smaller and smaller as they're needed. So it is one of those things that is important where it's not ever increasing the supply. It's just what is the, the unit. It's like saying, hey, we have a dollar. Okay, now we have four quarters. Okay, now we have you know, 10 nickels. Now we have 100 pennies. It's all the same amounts. It's just you're dividing it smaller and smaller into different fractions. So great point. So do you talk to people about Bitcoin today, like if someone brings it up or do you, have you gotten to the point where you're like, eh, oh, I don't know. It depends. It depends on the setting, probably. I mean, because most of my time is spent at work. The ladies that I work with, the, like, I have a great team, a wonderful team, but they just roll their eyes at me <laughs> constantly. And it's just become like a tongue in cheek joke that I know that they make fun of me and I just keep talking about it. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's funny, but I don't know if they do. I hope so. <laughs> but so... If somebody else brings it up, I mean, I love talking about it. Like I said before, I'm captivated. I think it's such an interesting story and very likely going to be a very impactful story. So, no, I love talking about it. I love hearing other people's thoughts on all the things like the origin, where it's going to go, how it's going to change the world potentially. I love it. But do I bring it up when it's not necessarily welcomed? No, because it's usually met with a lot of resistance and people don't want to talk about it. And I don't really understand. I, I tend to be an inquisitive person. I usually am interested in wanting to like, know something about something I don't know about. But I mean, probably an element of that. How is this different? I'm not going to say it. it's not it, a pyramid scheme, but we all are kind of subjected to these questionable tactics or markets. And I think that a lot of people believe that it's just the next one. And and maybe that's why I call it an experiment and maybe why I'm a little bit cautious about going all in and thinking that it's 100% going to change the world because I don't really know. I think that it doesn't seem like a pyramid scheme in the sense that there's negative intent, but certainly the people that do get in earlier are going to profit more. I think that's fair to say, which I think is an element of a pyramid scheme. And the fact that the origins are somewhat unknown, I mean, I think that's incredibly interesting. But on some level, I guess it's a little bit concerning, a little bit. I would love to hear, I'm sure that you probably have a spiel because I'm sure that's a conversation that gets brought up regularly. But I think that that's probably why there's resistance and that nobody wants to be the idiot that falls for the thing. 
Yeah. On the pyramid scheme thing, the way that those typically work is like when you come in, you're basically funneling things to the top. And I would say most of broader crypto, and I think that's why I try to make a distinction of Bitcoin, not crypto, is the fact that most crypto is it's a marketing machine where it's a company. They get VC investment. They spin up this thing. They sell the dream. And then once it gets listed on Coinbase, they dump it on retail and they use them as exit liquidity and just basically it plummets, right? It goes up and then it's straight down. To me, those are pyramid schemes. And I absolutely agree with that. With Bitcoin, A, the rules are in place. Everyone can audit and see the rules, right? 21 million. Every 10 minutes, there's a new block. The rewards are cut in half every four years. The rule set is there. The game board is there and it doesn't get changed. And whether you have 100 or half or $10 worth of Bitcoin, the rules are all applicable to you. And so the person that's in earlier, they have to make the decision of, do I hold it or is there something else that I want? Because it is just money. It's like saying the person that bought Apple stock in 2015 versus the person that bought Apple stock today. Is that a pyramid scheme? No, it's just someone decided to buy it earlier than someone else did. And they maybe they did the homework or maybe they understood it better. No, there's all, all kinds of different reasons and rationale for that. But there's not something like, hey, if I onboard 10 more people, I get extra Bitcoin. There's not like some sort of extra benefit where you get yield or you get unlock extra benefit. There's so many of those scampy type of behaviors and MLM schemes where, hey, you go sell this stuff to your friends on Facebook or something. Like we all know those like companies or those organizations. And so it might feel that way because you got someone that's like super passionate. You're like, oh, I know this person from high school or from whatever. They haven't talked to them for now. They're talking about Bitcoin all the time. It's like, this person seems crazy. I see how they can make that connection, but it is very different. I think it's just when you kind of get the concept, and I think we've both felt this way, it does. It's like, this might be one of the most important things that's happened in my lifetime that can make an impact. And I want to go tell people about it, or I want people to be informed, especially if you care about that person, like your team. I'm sure you're like, I really want you to get it because they probably complain. Housing's so expensive. Groceries are expensive. All these different things. And it's like, you know what? Maybe you should take a little bit of your savings and put it in this because there are fundamental reasons why all those things are going up. The reason that all those things are going up and why life is getting more expensive is because the money is broken. And I know a lot of people just don't want to sit and sift and go through all the rationale and reasons for why. So just keep it really high level. Right now, the money is broken. And it's going to continue to be broken. And the only way out of it is either we grow our GDP and all of a sudden there's like all this tech advancement, which is not going to happen. You would have to grow GDP in the United States to get out of the hole that we're in something like 12 or 14% per year for like a decade. Yeah, we're not going to grow. Or they're going to all of a sudden cut spending on stuff. So cut Social Security, cut Medicare, cut all these programs. That's when people with pitchforks and torches go marching on Washington, right? And they're not going to do that either. Or what we can do is just create more money, hit the Staples Easy button and allow it to just blame it on capitalism, blame it on wars, blame it on Putin and blame it on greedy companies and blame it on other things. When in reality, we create money out of nothing and we aren't responsible and we spend more than we make. And fundamentally, at some point, gravity matters and it's got to come back to reality that the system is set up and it's very fragile and ultimately that doesn't work. And so what Bitcoin is doing is, again, it's kind of like a phase transition of maybe you have one software implementation at your practice, like your PIMS, you're not just going to turn it off one day and turn the next one on. You're going to like phase and test it with both. And so I think that's where we're at, right? You're going to have the old system running for a little bit and you're going to bring the new one in and they overlap for a while. We're in the overlap stage. We're probably in that stage for a while. I mean, 10 years ago, 
when I was at the emergency clinic, which 10 years ago is not that long ago, we were not taking e-transfers. That was not even an option. And now it's extremely common for us to take deposits that way. And I mean, I'm sure that there's people that are a little bit older than me that would say the same thing about credit cards. I mean, there was a time where I think it was considered extremely untrustworthy, I think, I believe anyway, and certainly not ubiquitously accepted. So yeah, I think there's just gonna be a transition period. How slow or fast it goes is anybody's guess. But everything you said there was well said, and I, I agree. Yeah, tech innovation happens one funeral at a time is a statement that I've heard. I don't know who is originally the one that said that, which is a little yeah. morbid and a little not nice to say, but there's a lot of truth to that. But there was a Twitter post that was going around about Burger King accepting credit cards in 1983 and how people were amazed, right? But there was a time where people didn't want to put the credit card information on the web to buy stuff. I remember that time. I remember that time. I'm on the internet. Don't put your information. They're going to steal it all. We do that all the time and it's normal now. Who wouldn't do that? I mean, well, if you think about when I was a young adult, you would almost buy nothing online. Whereas now, I mean, the vast majority of things we purchase is online. I mean, with this obvious statement, but I think it's important to think about the reflection of a very short time period, how much things have changed. Is it really that unrealistic to think that in the same amount of time frame, 20 years or so, is it not going to potentially change just as much, if not more? And it appears that the certainly from the U.S. and Canada and probably the majority of the countries, the monetary system is not set up for long-term success. And we're seeing, you know, to your point earlier about cost of living continues to go up because of inflation, because that's how we're solving that or potentially solving that issue or addressing that issue in the short term. We're not seeing wages go up comparatively, I think that's fair to say, over the last 50 years or so. And it has to come to a head at some point. I don't see how it can continue. Yeah. So there's a really good chart on uh, WTF happened 1971, which I'll link in the show notes. And I've talked about it plenty on this show other times. But you look at productivity and wages and they just don't stay. Productivity has gone up a ton, but wages have not really risen alongside that. And there's all kinds of different games and things that are played with numbers that come out with unemployment and Right now, a lot of times in the United States, they'll talk about how unemployment's still low, but the idea is a lot of these jobs that are being created are second jobs. It's people literally working two jobs to keep up. And so that is part of the nuance there that you got to understand. And so when people are having to do that, that's not structurally sound and that's not something that's sustainable longer term. But there was something you said earlier on the origin story that I like, we answered the one pyramid piece, we didn't come back to the origin story. Because I know when we chatted before, there was like a number of different things that you brought up. I was like, oh, we'll have to get through those. But yeah, the origin story. So not knowing who created Bitcoin, I think is hard for some people. So he, them, she, Satoshi Nakamoto, right? This anonymous founder talked about Bitcoin in 2018, or sorry, 2008, and then it launched in 2009. And for a lot of people, they look at that as a negative or something that's weird, or who is Satoshi and we got to know. I think it's actually a really good feature because if you think about money is power, as much as I may not like saying that. And so to jeopardize a lot of people that are in positions of power today that hold the, we'll say the keys, right? The keys to that monetary power, they're not going to want to just give that up easily. And so if they knew, hey, Isaiah was Satoshi, he created Bitcoin. It's really easy to lean on that individual and put pressure on them to do things and make changes or maybe be hostile to that person, right? So the fact that you can't actually find that person and having anonymity is really, really important. And I don't think we'll ever really find out. And I think that's good. It's kind of this immaculate conception, which cannot be duplicated or created. And 
that's something that is, I think, really powerful and underappreciated versus being, oh, we need to know. I don't think you need to know. You just want to appreciate the gift that was given in this asset, this tool. Because again, money is a tool. And so Bitcoin is a tool. And if it's better money, just a great tool for humanity to use. It's obviously fun to just like talk about. I could definitely get behind the idea that it's a feature rather than a bug because you're right. There is no CEO. There's no building. There's no head office. There's no email. Even if somebody wanted to do something about it or influence it in some sort of negative way, good luck. It's a distributed network with rules that everybody plays along with. And again, it's just fascinating. And to think that when somebody or they or whoever it was, was creating this product or money tool, that they had the wherewithal to make it anonymous. And to my understanding, the first million or so Bitcoin was mined by that person. And what I've been told, I've not researched this myself, but none of those Bitcoins have ever moved. And I guess on some level, is that a potential risk, right? If that person just woke up or, yeah, I mean, it's hypothetical. So there is some trust. Now, at some point, will 1 million Bitcoin flooding in the market change anything? Probably not. If anything, it'll probably be a good thing because the liquidity will be so low at some point. But I think it's very fascinating to just kind of put yourself in that person's shoes to, if they're still alive today, I mean, just knowing that, that this is a gift to humanity, for lack of a better word, and to have the wherewithal to make it anonymous and continue to keep it anonymous. I mean, there's nothing that's secret these days. And it's yeah, uh, really impressive. I just love it. But I could also, you kind of mentioned there, it's like, it's understandable that that seems like a red flag. Right. It's understandable for somebody to just come in and be like, wait, you don't even know who created it. And if you Google it, there's all sorts of speculations on who may be involved and some of them being like cryptographers and some of them being more government entities and that sort of thing. And I guess ultimately it probably just doesn't matter. The person that received the first Bitcoin transaction named Hal Finney and he passed away from like throat cancer, I think in 13 or 14. And so if Hal, there's wide speculation that was either part of it or was maybe perhaps Satoshi already passed away. Right. And so that's one of those things where is really interesting. And like Hal's wife is still around. I think she's done a couple podcasts or some talks at some point more recently, like for a long time, didn't say anything. I would imagine if she knew, like she still, I mean, then has not said. Right. And I think there's just part of the aura again, immaculate conception is the term that I've always used that you don't know, which is good. But Thinking back through, if you have to choose between a trusted relationship or a trustless relationship, I don't want to necessarily say, hey, I'm going to trust these individuals that are going to change over the course of time and they get to dictate how our money is managed or how our finances for the globe work, right? Which is kind of the way that the, the central banks around the globe work today. It's like these are appointed leaders. And they make their decisions and that impacts all of us, how we live our lives. Or can it be every single person knows exactly what the rule set is? And every day you wake up, it's the exact same rules. Go out and create value and flourish. To me, that's an easy answer. Sign me up for the yeah. second. And no middleman, right? You don't have the, you know, for intercountry transfers and these sorts of things. There's a lot of logistics and politics and expenses that come into that. And having effectively this global currency, for lack of better words, you really do bypass the majority of that. Yeah. I know we had a couple other Bitcoin related talks. Anything you want to chat through, ask, dig into that's intriguing now? 
I mean, we really have covered a lot of things as far as the origin story, the supply and demand and how that affects price and that sort of thing. We talked about crypto not being synonymous with Bitcoin and that, yes, it's part of that world in the technology perspective. We've really covered the things that, I guess, get me going. So yeah, no, I'm happy for you to take the lead. And if you have any other thoughts or questions, lead the discussion. I guess the one that I think a lot of people bring up and ask me is like, how can Bitcoin be money if it's so volatile? It's dropped 75% or it's dropped 80% before. Like, how can anyone ever use this? How can you think of this as money? Give me thoughts on that. I have a couple thoughts, but I would love to kind of throw it to you. Yeah, well, what I've heard, I don't know if I've thought of this myself, but what I've heard that the idea with that rainbow chart that there is that eventually there is some degree of a steady state that is achieved. Now, I don't know if that means it's going to occur in 20 or 50 or 100 years, but I think that eventually that would be the case. For me, I am kind of stuck with both feet in the idea that it is a investment tool rather than money. That's kind of how I think of it. It's parked over there. I just continue to put a little bit of money in it every month. I don't care what the price is. It just doesn't matter. So as far as using it as a money and with the volatility, I don't really consider that. That often is a part of the common conversations that I have with people too, especially right now when the price is low, during not during the bull market. That's oftentimes where the criticism comes in too. Like, oh, well, it's down so much. But I understand why it's down. It makes sense. It's not really down. It just was up before because of the result of the halvening and the increased publicity that it did get, and then it balances back out. And so I would say that right now, I wouldn't say that it's down in the bear markets. I would say that it's where it probably should be. And in, in the bull markets, is it's excessively high. So I would say that those times are great. <laughs> and if one is concerned about it as a money, that's maybe not the time you would want to purchase it. But I think that take out that one year where it's typically elevated, at least historically has been, this is the price that it really is for this happening. That's the way I look at it. So no, I, I don't know how it would work on a day-to-day -day transaction if I was going to the store and buying things. I think the short-term volatility as far as up or down 0.1%, I don't think matters. But I think when we're talking about December of 2020 versus now, I think that is important. Yeah. So I do think it's money and I do think it's a process of getting there and that's where like you don't just wake up and go from like one thing to the other so vj boyapati wrote the bullish case for bitcoin i think in 2018 2019 but it has a really great piece that i've shared and talked about a lot which is bitcoin started out as collectible nerds on the internet wanted to use it right internet forums you said you found it kind of early on 2013 2012 super early crazy early right to hear about it. And I've heard of it. <laughs> well, Mike Cousins a little bit of a computer nerd. He's always an early adopter. So yeah. Yeah, but I think that's kind of who was attracted to Bitcoin back then. And then it comes to store value, which is where we're at today. We think of it as an investment asset. We think of it next to our portfolio because it's this high growth, right, thing that adds performance and more dollars in our account if we use it. And because our measuring stick is all dollars still. We don't measure things by Bitcoin. We're we're still in the old system, we're not in a new system. And Jeff Booth, who is an awesome Bitcoin advocate, BC investor from Canada, talks about how you can't measure a new system from within the old. I think that's a really powerful quote. It's really hard for us to see what a Bitcoin system would look like because we're still measuring it from everything we've seen in dollars. When the two fish swim by the old fish and they ask, like, how's the water? The young fish are like, huh? What's he talking about? They don't even know they're in water. And so that's how we are with thinking about this Bitcoin world. Like, we only know dollars. We've only ever known dollars not backed by gold in this kind of fiat system. 
for most of us, right? So it goes collectible store value, medium exchange, which is, hey, we're going to use it for transactions. We're going to use it to pay for veterinary care. We're going to use it to pay for financial advice. We're going to use it to pay our car payment. We're going to use it to pay our mortgage. And then unit of account is we view everything as in Bitcoin terms. So SATs, so 100 million SATs in a Bitcoin. So everything is SATs. This loaf of bread is SATs. This computer is SATs. What we pay for our office chair, whatever, right? That happens over time. That doesn't happen all in one. And so when you look at Bitcoin, it is money. It's just going through that monetization process. It has to be a store of value first before it can become a medium exchange in a unit of account because we need to understand that this thing is valuable. Because if you just start transacting and accepting something but you don't think it's valuable, it doesn't really work. You got to have it be valuable and people want it first. So if a merchant says, hey, I make really good boat covers. You can only get my boat covers if you pay me in Bitcoin. Well, he's not going to do that until he understands that Bitcoin is actually good money. And so I think that's probably one thing that I probably failed a little bit on this podcast is trying to get people to understand Bitcoin is money. You should accept your practice, all this other stuff. They need to understand that it's valuable. They need to understand that it's a store of value first and that, hey, you buy this thing. It's had a 70% compound annual growth rate for the last 10 years. Not saying that that's going forward. I'm not giving you financial yeah. advice. I'm giving you life advice. Bitcoin is beneficial. You should probably get some, right? But if you look at the properties of Bitcoin, I pulled up, the, there's a fidelity chart that's really good. But you look at what are the properties of Bit, or properties of money? Durability, divisibility, fungibility, portability, verifiable, scarce, and then they talk about track record. And so if you look at those things, Bitcoin has more durability than anything else. It's durable like gold. Gold, you can't really destroy it. Divisible, gold's hard to hunk off a corner for some veterinary care. Bitcoin's pretty easy. Fiat currency's pretty easy. Fungible, it's fungible with other currencies. You're able to change it and manipulate it. Portable, it's easy to store and move dollars. It's easy to store and move Bitcoin. Hard to get the Brinks trucks to ship my gold bars up to Edmonton for care, right? And you look at verifiable, it's really easy to verify Bitcoin. You run Bitcoin um, software, you can verify that this is real Bitcoin. And then it's scarce. So that's important. That's what gives gold value. That's why gold's been money for 5,000 years. Same thing with Bitcoin. It's digitally scarce. I think there's some unique technological things that people need to understand, but it is digitally scarce. And then track record. I mean, that all makes sense. And coming from the veterinarian sort of business owner perspective, a lot of us, I'm not a financial guy, right? And so we often focusing on veterinary dentistry, I'm focusing on my staff and referral relationships. And when it comes to, let's say, payment transactions, I mean, I really lean on banks and our accountants and bookkeepers for advice and leadership. At one of our more recent year ends, I guess a year ago, I asked about Bitcoin and it was like, oh, I don't know anything about it. And it's like, okay. So I think it is hard. I think when you understand it, it makes sense. But when your advisors don't even have a very fundamental, not even fundamental understanding of what it even is, I mean, that's shocking. And I think it is hard from the entrepreneurial perspective, per se, to come up with the solutions. Like, for example, we also have practice management software. I'm going to willing to bet there's not a Bitcoin option on there for receiving transactions, yeah, right? Not yet. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. Yes. Yeah. So I think that it is tough from the business owner perspective, whether it's veteran medicine or 7-Eleven or whatever, to be a leader in that space. I mean, Maybe to your point, I think you've heard, I've heard you say before, I mean, that is an opportunity. That is an opportunity. I think you've talked about how it could be even almost like a marketing opportunity to try to demonstrate how innovative your practice is or business is and that sort of thing. And I definitely subscribe to that idea, but it's hard when you're 
advisors don't even know what it is. Yeah. And I think that's part of where the education with Bitcoin needs to get to. A, financial advisors, that's another passion of mine, getting them to understand what Bitcoin is. Because if you're going to talk about money and Bitcoin is money, and you don't really understand why Bitcoin is money, that's a problem. Because if you're talking to people about personal finance and you don't understand the root cause of, like, of what is money, that's an issue. And I think for most advisors, I know I was in that camp, I didn't really understand what money is, but I'm giving financial advice that's counterintuitive. And a lot of advisors don't like gold. And I think that's silly because gold has been money and is money. And they don't understand why gold was valuable. And it's the same thing that's the fish in the water. They are in this financial services world and it's just all consuming, but they've never actually zoomed out and said, like, what is this whole thing about? And they just don't get the bigger picture. And it's the same way for an accountant. It's the same way for, well, banks have kind of a vested interest not to really adopt Bitcoin. So they're going to definitely kind of poo-poo that and not want you to, to move that way. I think for most, yes, there's a marketing angle to attracting Bitcoiners to your practice. I don't think it's going to be a massive amount of people that are going to do it. Full disclosure, I've never said it's going to 2x revenue or something like that. But what you can do with it is you just can hold that Bitcoin. You don't need to sell it back. And it's pretty easy then for the accounting teams to do that. So as long as you have free cash flow within your business, if you have 0.01% of your client base or patient base, right, paying you in Bitcoin, you'll be fine. And then at some point that's going to accrue in value and it's going to allow you to pay out bonuses, buy new equipment, do all these other things. Because again, it's growing in purchasing power. Your dollars are losing in purchasing power. And so if you're holding 5 or 10% in Bitcoin, which would be a lot, and I doubt you'd even get there, it actually will offset the loss of purchasing power for your dollars. So I think that's kind of one of the big things that I'm stressing is this actually is like a protection mechanism for the melting ice cube, which is your treasury for your business. Because for a lot of businesses, they hold a lot of cash because they have a lot of expenses and other things going on. They want to make sure they're protected. They don't want to get caught like in a 2020 and be too tight because I think that scared a lot of people when they weren't sure that they didn't have enough cash on hand. So there's going to probably be higher cash holdings. And the other thing is just the merchant processing. So today you can process a Bitcoin transaction for free if you really want to nerd out and set up your own stuff, or you can outsource it and it's half a percent anywhere in the world, half a percent with Lightning, which is pretty cool. Which is a much better than our conventional transactions for merchant services. Yeah, which merchant services, if you negotiate down and maybe you're getting two and a half percent, and so it's still a 2% savings, you can pass that back or you can just retain it as profitability. But yeah, it's not going to dramatically change your practice to be able to accept it. But I do think it can be more from a marketing angle and lens, depending on the city. If I'm in rural West Virginia, which I know I've used that example a handful of times in the podcast, which is strange. But if I'm there, likelihood of people accepting and wanting to spend Bitcoin with me, pretty low. If I'm in Austin, Texas, uh, kind of Bitcoin capital of the United States, yeah, you absolutely, every single veterinarian in Austin should be advertising they accept Bitcoin because there's lots of Bitcoin companies there, lots of Bitcoin in that city. And so you need to understand where you're at too. Yeah. Now, something you said there, I think would be maybe a good segue is that you mentioned bonuses and that sort of thing coming out of holding Bitcoin in your treasury. We talked about before how just people you work with or whatever, family, friends, not really embracing the idea of Bitcoin. But what opportunities have you heard that some businesses are doing, maybe using Bitcoin as an investment as a way and maybe sharing that with their staff or something like that? Is Have you heard of any companies doing that? So this is going to be the shameless plug for the company I work for. So full disclosure, right? So Swan Bitcoin has a Bitcoin benefit plan, a BBP. I should say this wasn't yeah. planned. Isaiah did not ask me to this say this. This isn't part of, just yeah, as I said, there's another guy on the team that runs this, but I think it's really cool. And I actually get it as an employee of Swan. So that's 
They don't do a 401k. They do a Bitcoin benefit plan. So I get paid Bitcoin from them directly every month. Think of it like a match that you would pay out to your team. And what's cool is with Swan, you get the account. You don't have to learn how to take self-custody or do anything with the Bitcoin. It just comes into the account. You create an account and then you get some emails that educate you a little bit on Bitcoin. I still get the emails just because I got enrolled in it. So I get the same email everyone else does. And it's trying to be like, hey, so why does this Bitcoin thing matter? Hey, your employer loves you, right? Because they're giving you the best money in the world. And this is what it's traditionally done. And then when you're ready, they can take self-custody. They can learn about it. And so it's like giving them the first step just to see it. So let's say they get $100 every month, $50 every month. And they're like, huh, that $50 that Dr. Chris gave me last month is now worth 55. Oh, that's cool. And then over the years, it's like it starts accruing. And they're like, wow, this is really kind of cool. This has grown my purchasing power. Again, they're going to measure it all in dollars still because they don't, they don't, they haven't got to the, the other part. But then I think it can be an education piece for that leadership team of like, this is why we do it. We think it's a better fit. It's actually probably lower cost than doing a 401k and these other things. So to me, there's a lot of interesting ways to do it. But yeah, if you just even accepted Bitcoin into your practice, one of the things that you can do also is say, hey, Isaiah, you new grad veterinarian, I know you're on a 20 or 25 year repayment plan. We're going to pay all of your tax bomb when it comes to paying your student loans back. We will guarantee that if you work for us for X amount of years. That's great. I heard it's going to be like 90K in 25 years. I don't have to save for that. That's great. And if I'm the practice owner, all I'm going to do is buy a little bit of Bitcoin and hold it and let it monetize. And I know that people are going to be saying, well, Isaiah, how can you be so sure that's going to get to that number? I can buy a little bit of Bitcoin and allow it to grow and just monetize. And that's actually going to lower that cost and that ability of A, retaining talent and keeping that individual there and just satisfying that back of the head, like, oh my gosh, it's financial stress. That's a huge thing. And so I think that those are some of the ways I think Bitcoin practically works really well as an owner of being able to offer some unique things. So yeah, the BBP is definitely interesting. Um, not a huge part of our business. I think there's decent traction, but I mean, there's lots of small businesses that the owners already into Bitcoin and they want to give it to their their team. And so they'll do that. But it's, yeah, it's not like a massive part of our business today from that standpoint. Yeah, no, very interesting. I mean, I think that that seems like something that will likely grow. And I think that if we see similar trends continue with this upcoming happening, I think that the Bitcoin industry is kind of poised if that we see a similar rise that's going to get the same amount of attention as it did in 2020, 21, I can't imagine that those types of options and services aren't going to be talked about more. And you also mentioned before, like that banks kind of have a, a vested interest in not supporting it. I mean, well, we have like that interesting phenomenon going on right now in the United States with all the ETFs, which some of the financial institutions are a part of. And that's, I think, probably a very interesting development too, with respect to the amount of Bitcoin that will be available for everybody in liquidity. I think the backdrop for Bitcoin moving forward is interesting and I always have to caveat it. It's always interesting to me. I'm a huge, obviously, Bitcoin bull. I think very highly of Bitcoin. But there are a couple of things and you talked about the halving a couple of times and shame on me for not explaining the halving earlier to people that have listened. So if you're still with us, the halving is basically every four years, Bitcoin supply issuance gets cut in half. So half the amount of Bitcoin gets issued. So if demand for Bitcoin stays the same, and there's only half as much there. What happens to a scarce asset it has to go up in price. The price has to increase. And then maybe that makes someone sell because they want to do something or it unlocks them to be able to retire or something else that they can do. So that has usually been a really big proponent of driving the price higher. 
Now, historically, I think the happening has given a bigger rise to the price increase than maybe what will happen in the future where it's going to be other trends that will be bigger. But in the past, it's happened three times. It's been a 100x increase the first time, a 30x and an 8x increase in the price. And so if this next go round is a 4 to 8x, let's say, which is a pretty plain Jane base case at 30K, that goes to 120 to 240. Again, I'm not telling you what that's what the price is going to be. That would be in some time in late 24 or 25, or probably 25 would be kind of the peak of that price. And then you have the ETF filing. So as Chris was talking about, you have a lot of legacy financial institutions that are saying, how do we make money on this Bitcoin thing? Well, let's make it really easy so that someone in their Schwab or Vanguard or Fidelity account can just click buy Bitcoin ETF versus actually owning the underlying asset. They're going to charge more for it. And they're going to make money because people want some easy solution. You don't actually want it because the ETF is an IOU. You can't actually ever redeem it for real Bitcoin. You should buy real Bitcoin. I'm going to caveat that. I work for a company that sells real Bitcoin. I want you to own real Bitcoin. But that is super important where there are going to be banks and legacy financial institutions that are going to say, hey, we're really good at making products. We're really good at making money. And we will take this Bitcoin theme and we're going to try to make it as easy as possible for people to get access. But they actually won't own the Bitcoin. And that's a problem because at the end of the day, if I'm correct, that this is actually money, you're going to want the actual Bitcoin. You don't want the USD price tracking IOU. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that the thing that's, I guess, encouraging for me is that we have real financial players taking it seriously. And I think that that's a positive movement. Now, I agree. I mean, it comes to the whole issue of self-custody and the importance of that, because I think that, again, a lot of the negative narratives and dialogue around Bitcoin come from the issues with FTX and whatever the other ones, Mt. Gox, or whatever the issues were in the past, where you leave it on the exchange and it's not in your pocket, even though it may look like it. And the importance of getting cold storage wallets and taking that process seriously, I think that it can't be overstated. But I think that the idea of creating some sort of saving vehicles to bring more people to Bitcoin, I think, is a positive movement, I believe anyway. Yeah, I think it's just a grassroots movement and it all starts with education of being educated on what is money and thinking about money for the first time ever. And maybe part of the reasons of why certain things around life are hard is because of that. And then for people, it's all based on incentives. So if I can move and port to this new system that makes life easier, I will do that because the pain is too much staying in the old system. And so I think over time, it's just trying to tell people I get it. Maybe you don't think Bitcoin is the best thing since life spread like me, but get a little bit and continue to save into it. And I think it will help you. Ultimately, that's the bullhorn or the big thing I'm trying to like shout for the mountaintops to that met is, hey, you feel like you don't get paid as much. You feel like there's all these challenges. Just carve off a little bit of what you get paid or when you get a signing bonus or you get your quarterly variable comp, put some of that commission money into Bitcoin, just a little bit, right? Just a little bit. And I think you'll be better off if you have a time horizon that's out three, five, seven, ten years and just continue to do that. You'll be in a really good spot. Or even generationally, right? Holding it for your family. I think that that's kind of my time horizon. I'm not even really concerned about it for my life, but I, I do really think of it as a generational asset, or I think it's likely to become that, or I think it is at this point. That is something that I would want to pass on to my family and that I think will benefit my family in the long run. And I'm grateful for that opportunity to even be able to provide that. I love it. That's most of the stuff that I had listed for us. 
for those that want to connect with you, chat, any parting words, any parting thoughts? Well, for the veterinarians and people in the veterinary profession, bet on yourself. I think that we often give away too much of our own power to our bosses or maybe our colleagues or superiors, but bet on yourself and lean into the things that make you feel uncomfortable. And I mean, I have to continue doing that in my life in other ways, but with respect to dentistry, if you're not loving it, I think that you do have the ability to A, not do it and focus on the things that you're good at and passionate about, or get some education and do a great job for your patients. And you actually may find higher professional satisfaction doing it. And I think we all need a little bit more of that. So yeah, well, thank you, Isaiah, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my story and also to talk about Bitcoin. I think both veterinary dentistry and Bitcoin are my passions and I'm grateful for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And you're on LinkedIn, so people want to connect with you. And LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, email, is it appropriate to say six? To share email, yeah, on here. if you want. I, I mean, if they're staying around this long, they're probably not the crazies. I won't put it in the show notes. So sure, yeah, can, yeah. sure, yeah. So it's my last name, Sauve S A U V E at dvm.com for Doctor Veterinary Medicine. So if anybody wants to connect, I guess some reasons why somebody might want to connect is I am in the process of starting a residency program at my facility. We're just doing the paperwork for that, so nothing's official at this point. So I will be accepting applications for lack of a better word once it does come out so if somebody is interested in that or if they're interested in potentially joining our practice more so on the emergency side joining edmonton alberta it's not the middle of nowhere even though it may seem like it especially from your perspective in the united states we do have houses here and, <laughs> and that sort of thing there's still grass and it's almost november so reach out to me and I, i'm happy to entertain any any yeah i love it thank you for carving out as much time as you did today this was a blast i had a ton of fun and appreciate you sharing your story and it's a great conversation awesome thanks man thanks for listening to today's show the comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment tax or legal advice all comments are for educational purposes only however you are intelligent enough to make decisions for yourself so i do encourage you to dig in learn for yourself and not just outsource every decision that you make you should talk to your professional team if you have one before implementing anything that i talk about but also make sure they know what they're talking about push them question them that's healthy that's okay oh yeah and you should probably own and learn a little bit about that bitcoin thing the biggest compliment you can give to me is to share the show with a friend or the podcast if there's another episode that you really like that helps folks find it that helps it grow um, reviews are critical. The Apple Podcast is the platform that's predominantly used for how people find the show. So if you have three minutes, love the show, please head over, give us five stars if you believe that's what we earned. That would help more people find the show. Also, if you're new, go to YouTube. It's a channel, uh, putting up all the videos there as well. Sometimes it's going to be more interactive. Other times it's just going to be the conversation. So vainly, I want to get 100 subscribers so I get the vanity URL. That's the goal. We're on our way, but not quite there yet. For all of today's links information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can also subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss any episodes in the future. And finally, if you'd like more information, insights, or have the ability to, for your voice to be heard, join the Facebook group. You can search for the Veterinarian Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll to the bottom, about your host, click on the Facebook icon. And thanks again for listening. I appreciate you. All right. So there are a lot of great job postings that I want to get to. And so we're going to start off with Bayside Hospital for Animals. Great work-life balance in beautiful Fort Walton Beach, Florida. No weekends, Monday to Friday, eight to five, no on-call or emergencies. It's appointment only here. Currently a two and a half doctor practice, new owner in 2021. 
bringing some fresh life into the hospital. The new owner had been there for six years prior working, so definitely understands the team, the processes, and the community. Lots of investment in people and new equipment. ProSal is the pay structure. Far too many benefits for me to list. Email BaysideVet251 at Yahoo or call 850-864-1857. Join a thriving, growing small animal practice in Vermont on the Quebec border. Full-time ideal, part-time is considered. The idea is to start with yes with the team, patients and clients in outdoor woman's paradise while uh, being able to practice high-quality medicine. Compensation is write your own structure within production capabilities. Literally, it is the owner wants to t- find the right person and is happy to negotiate, chat through, and find the right fit. If you want autonomy and a boss that enjoys teaching, reach out to Newport Veterinary Hospital. You can email newportveterinaryhospital at gmail.com. North Central Indiana, looking for an oasis in the chaos? Who isn't, right? Come join the amazing team at Fulton County Veterinary Clinic. They strive to foster a fun, fast-paced work environment while providing quality patient care. They utilize the support staff efficiently so that the doctor is available to practice medicine and do what you're trained to do in less time and paperwork, which is great. Lots of investment in new equipment and technology to support you, full-time or part-time available. Small animal and exotics are both seen there, so no ER, no on-call, no weekends, competitive salary with sign-on bonus offered, and far too many benefits to list. Go to Fulton County Veterinary Clinic, so type that in and you'll find the job posting there. Last but not least, join Watertown Animal Hospital, personable, small animal veterinarian wanted for well-established current five-doctor mixed animal practice in northern New York, which is an outdoors person's paradise. Again, two of those. So if you like the outdoors, you can look at Vermont or New York. They have plenty of support staff with six CSRs, six licensed technicians, four animal caretakers, two technical assistants, hospital associate, or sorry, hospital assistant, a practice manager, and a bookkeeper. Focuses on mentorship and investment on the people and the technology. That's been a strategic initiative by the leadership team. No on call, a 24-hour ER less than an hour away. Salary based on experience, but no less than 95,000. Can be straight salary, pro-sal considered. Want to discuss that with the right person. Tons of benefits. Again, too much to list. Please reach out to watertownpetcare.com for that option as well. So again, if you find a role or a job or talk to anyone and it helps you in any way, I would love to hear that feedback. So please reach out. Let me know what you're able to do. And I will continue to post these. So if you are an owner, reach out to me, let me know. And we'll go from there. And until I hit a capacity of I can't keep recording these, I want to let people know who are high quality owners around the country looking for great help. So with that, we'll talk soon.